From Upstate Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Coronary artery disease is the most common type of heart disease and the leading cause of death in the United States for men and women. Here to discuss diagnosis and treatment options is Dr. Barry Esrig. Uh, he is a heart surgeon and an assistant professor at Upstate Medical University who is the interim chief of cardiac surgery. Welcome, Dr. Esrig. Good to be here. Thank you for being here. So how does a person typically learn that they have coronary artery disease? Well, there are several ways they can learn. The worst way to learn is if they have a heart attack or they have chest pain that's unremitting and you know, they suddenly wind up in an emergency room and they, uh, they're told they have a heart problem. But there are some, uh, some pre-existing uh, conditions that one has that you know, sets you up for it. For instance, uh, if you have uh, you know, long-standing hypertension, if you have diabetes, if you have peripheral vascular disease, then you know, you're at a higher risk of having heart disease. And screening tests can be done at, at those particular uh, uh, intervals uh, where they'll get uh, routine electrocardiograms, they can get stress tests, they can get nuclear stress tests, they can get echocardiograms. So depending upon your risk factors, you know, it would be great to, uh, to have a screening program set up with your physician so that if there is any problem, you can get to it early and uh, get it diagnosed before it becomes a problem. So if you get regular um, medical care, hopefully this might be learned about at a checkup or something. Uh, or nothing, beats red, uh, nothing beats regular medical checkups with a physician who knows you and knows your history, knows uh, your family history, uh, knows whatever uh, pre-existing problems you have, and can set up a screening program as is necessary. Not everyone needs to be screened, obviously, and uh, okay. you know, age, uh, genetics in terms of your family history are very important, and what, whether you have some of these other pre-existing risk factors. And even so, someone who doesn't have um, high blood pressure or diabetes, someone who doesn't have these risk factors could still fall victim to coronary artery disease with a heart attack that comes on with, without warning. Yeah. Unfortunately, so. we see that on a regular basis where people who have had no previous history suddenly come in with unremitting chest pain. They either have what's called an acute coronary syndrome where they, uh, the heart is not getting as much blood as it needs and they're developing chest pain, but they've not had a heart attack or actually come in with a heart attack. Okay. So what, what is happening? What is causing a coronary artery disease? What's going on in the coronary arteries? Well, basically, uh, if you think of, of a supply and demand situation, you have the heart which needs a certain amount of blood and oxygen, uh, and so that's the, the demand, and you have the supply which is provided through the arteries of the heart. If you have a mismatch where the supply cannot keep up with the demand, then you can get things like angina, which is basically chest pain. And if you have a sudden blockage where all of the uh, blood is cut off to a certain area of the heart, then you can develop a heart attack. So it's really a problem of decreased supply that is unable to meet the demands. There are, other, there are other times you can have this chest pain without having coronary artery disease that oftentimes involves uh, diseases, let's say, of the aortic valve where the heart grows just like if you were uh, weightlifting and your muscles get you know, big and strong uh, where you can literally outstrip 
the uh, the demand of the normal uh, outstrip the supply of the normal coronary artery, uh, and then one has to look at at what the underlying issue is when you don't have coronary artery disease. Is it related to something on this order? You know, we hear about um, in Syracuse during the winter when people um, when there's a big snowstorm and there's the caution goes out to you know not go out and shovel and lift that heavy snow. Um, and I guess you see this too when people are exercising, maybe they may be prone to a heart attack. So the heart would be exceeding or increasing the demand and the blood vessels would not be able to keep up. Or you get what's called spasm where the vessels will normally narrow down. So you have a combination of both. Okay. Well, either way, so so what is done um, when someone arrives in the emergency department, and I'm sure time is of the essence, but what is done for someone who's suffered a coronary artery disease or a heart attack? Well, the first thing is to make the diagnosis. So one obviously gets a, a good history and gets a high index of suspicion, uh, does a physical examination, sees exactly what's going on with the patient, including their vital signs, their blood pressure, their heart rate, uh, and uh, the general feeling whether they are nauseated, whether they've had any, uh, any vomiting, whether they are uh, sweating profusely, which are, you know, pretty classic signs. Then they would get a chest x-ray just to make sure that there's nothing else going on. But more importantly, they would get an electrocardiogram. And they would also draw a series of blood tests to see if there's any uh, indication that the heart is not getting the blood supply it needs. So one would look predominantly at the uh, electrocardiogram. They would see some changes that would indicate that the uh, heart is not getting its blood supply. Either it's uh, what's called ischemic, which is not having a heart attack, but definitely not getting the blood supply, or whether it's actually undergoing damage with a sudden stoppage of blood supply to a particular area. And one can generally get a good idea based upon the electrocardiogram of which of the two there are. The blood test would then be confirmatory to see if there's a large rise in one of the uh, blood test values or whether there's a small rise or no rise at all. Uh, these come in variable uh, different diagnoses, if you will. Uh, one's called an acute coronary syndrome, as I mentioned, where they could have what's called a non-ST segment. That's an electrocardiogram. Uh, non-ST segment elevate right. Non-ST segment myocardial infarction, meaning there's no real change in the electrocardiogram, but the laboratory tests indicate that there has been some event which has caused usually limited uh, damage to the heart versus having big changes on the electrocardiogram and big changes in the blood tests, which would indicate you're probably having a heart attack. Okay. Uh, this is Upstate's Health Link on Air talking about coronary artery disease with Upstate's Dr. Barry Esrig. Um, so once you know that a person does have uh, a blockage or coronary artery disease, what, what, what happens next? What's the treatment? Well, it depends upon whether they're having a heart attack or whether they're just having what's called the acute coronary syndrome. Okay. The, uh, the worst scenario, obviously, is if you're having an acute heart attack. And over the, uh, over the years, the treatment of that has become much more advanced uh, with what's called percutaneous interventions done in the catheterization laboratory. The primary treatment for an acute event like a heart attack is to go to the catheterization laboratory get an angiogram, find out the 
artery that has been acutely affected and then open it up. And okay, so there are guide- let me um, back you up okay. just a minute. So percutaneous means that you go in through a vessel rather than Correct. cutting through, a person open? Correct. Through the skin. Okay. Through the skin. Uh, they, uh, they put a tube uh, into the blood vessels. They under uh, fluoroscopic control. They, so they can see they, like an- They pass it up to uh, the, the uh, heart where they can inject directly into the arteries that supply blood to the heart and get a picture of it and then uh, can tell where the blockage may be. Blockage or blockages. Or blockages. There may be more than right. one. Okay. Usually, when you're dealing with an acute uh, episode like this, there's one particular artery, artery which we call the culprit vessel, and by opening that up, uh, usually, uh, and there are guidelines for this, which says that uh, to really be effective, that should be opened up within 90 minutes. So mm-hmm. we have something called door to balloon time, which means that from the time you come in to the time you get to the catheterization laboratory and open up the artery, uh, the best time frame to accomplish the maximum benefit was in those within those ninety within minutes. Within ninety minutes, okay, all right. Well, um, are there times though that uh, surgery, traditional like open heart surgery, is needed, or is that not done as much? Well. Open heart surgery, uh, which I assume you're referring to coronary artery bypass, it's still done quite a bit, and it's still one of the uh, largest operation, largest number of operations done in the country. Um, but how we do those operations has really changed. Uh, we used to do them for people like this who would have an acute event, like mm-hmm. a heart attack, but we found that actually uh, the results with opening them up in the catheterization laboratory is actually much better, much in, the, better. in the acute yeah. setting. Now, if you have this type of event and you have multiple arteries that are narrowed or blocked, then after the acute event is over, one can then go ahead and go into surgery to correct the other arteries as well. Depend Again, depends upon the arteries that are blocked in the combinations. Most of the time uh, we're doing coronary artery bypass in patients who have acute coronary syndrome or have chronic uh, coronary artery disease, chronic angina. So where, you want to prevent them having a heart attack. Where, right, so. where you know exactly what's going on, uh, you know exactly what you need to do, and we can then bypass those arteries that are either blocked or narrowed, and it's a non-emergent situation. The results from this immediate intervention in the catheterization laboratory has been much, much better than taking people emergently to the operating room, which is why the American Heart Association, American College of Cardiology have all agreed that that is the primary treatment for the acute event. But what's also important is to know that we've also changed how we, uh, how we do coronary artery bypass now in terms of what we're using to bypass those vessels. Uh, so coronary- what, did, what did you do first and what are you doing now? What are the changes? Well, the first thing is that uh, we have to understand the history. Uh, coronary artery bypass in its modern form did not come about until 1968 in the Cleveland Clinic with Don Effler. And at that time, they were using just vein from the leg. Uh, So they would take vein from the leg and transplant it into the coronary artery to create a bypass? They would put one end onto the aorta, which is the large artery coming out of the heart, 
and the other end would go into the artery of the heart beyond the blockage. Okay. Uh, George Green was uh, using an artery behind the breastbone called the internal mammary artery, and over a period of time it became clear that that was an exceptionally good artery to use so that people would get a arterial bypass usually to the artery that runs down the front of the heart called the anterior descending and vein bypasses to the other arteries. Okay. Uh, now we have come to realize that the more arterial bypasses one can do, the better off they are long term. So now we're actually using uh, multiple arteries and we use, there are two internal mammary arteries, one on the left and one on the right. And we're now using them to bypass multiple arteries of the heart. So it's not unusual to have two arterial bypasses going to three vessels and maybe the fourth vessel might need a vein. Wow. So uh, that's pretty much where we've come. And we've also developed techniques which we call hybrid revascularization, where we will do uh, a small incision and use the artery behind the breastbone, the mammary artery, to the artery on the front, the anterior descending. And then because we know that, particularly on the right, uh, a stent works almost as well as a vein, then go ahead and stent the artery on the right. Oh, while you're doing the... Right, at the okay. same sitting or in, or in sequence. That's okay. called a hybrid revascularization. Mm -hmm. So we've developed multiple techniques based upon the patient and what the patient needs. Can you always use the patient's, or do you always have to use the patient's arter own arteries and veins, or does it ever work that the patient, their veins or, or arteries are not usable? We tried many different types of material in the past. None of them work nearly as well and oftentimes fail very, very early mm. unless they're the patient's own material. Okay. So we, we tried that. didn't work very well. Okay. Interesting. All right. Well, thank you for um, telling us about this. Appreciate it. This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air with Dr. Barry Esrig, an assistant professor of surgery at Upstate Medical University.